EPS, powered by Seth. Welcome to Line Noise. Today we are talking to Harold Heath, who is a uh, producer, DJ, and now author for something slightly uh, slightly different. Why not? Um, his new book, Long Relationships, is out now. I thoroughly recommend you read it. Uh, and we sat down to talk to him uh, on the day that the book was released. Uh, welcome to Radio Primavera Sound, and I'm here with DJ producer and now author, uh, Harold Heath. Harold, how are you doing? Hello, good afternoon. I'm very well today. How are you? I'm good. Um, and your, your excellent book, uh, Long Relationships, My Incredible Journey from Unknown DJ to Small-Time DJ uh, has just been published by Velocity Press um, and you must be very pleased with how it's all gone. I am very pleased. It's a little bit nerve-wracking when it first hits and then you spend a couple of days just waiting to see if anyone's going to read it or get back to you. Um, but so far we've had lots of really good feedback uh, from people that I really respect. So yeah, it's landing good. Um, we're happy with how it's going, man. Why Why did you decide to write it? Well, I quite enjoy the process of writing. I'm quite a nostalgic, sentimental person. I really enjoyed, you know, revisiting my past. I thought it was a story that was worth telling. Um, you know, dance music history is made up of famous people doing big influential things. Um, and, you know, that's a really interesting story. I love reading about all the exploits of the famous DJs and the real pioneers, you know, I'm a proper fan. But also I just thought our story of the people who didn't innovate anything but just kind of potted around the lower end of the industry, I thought it was a, a, an interesting story too, one worth telling. I think this is one of the reasons I really I really loved the book was because um, while you had immeasurably more success than I ever did as a DJ, um, it, it was still sort of relatable, you know, it wasn't the story of like, I don't know, Sven Veit or something like that. Um, so I'm kind of interested, what do you think the book tells us about success? I thought about that a lot when I was writing it. And I thought about how, when I was much younger, I used to, in terms of my DJing career, I would always measure myself against other DJs and where they were, and sort of be driven and feel like I had to get somewhere. And I think part of writing this book, the process, it kind of made me reevaluate that whole idea of what success was really. Because I look back now, just, you know, this succession of good times that I had, that, terribly good fun and enriching friendships I made and it kind of shaped my attitude to life and you know that seems to be quite a success really to have spent a life doing something that you really love that seems to be quite a success really so I guess the process of writing it made me slightly reevaluate what success was I guess. I, I got that impression that basically you were very happy with where you were you know you look back you look back on things that, that you did and like yeah that that was really impressive you know you didn't feel like there, there were moments when like well you know i could have you know maybe been bigger but you seem very happy is that right yeah definitely man it was good fun the whole thing um there's a part of me i think that would always want to do more achieve more i'm quite a driven person do you know what i mean but now i've just channeled it somewhere else now i'm writing frantically instead so i have no need to chase any DJ goals but yeah I mean looking back on it like I say it's just a succession generally of really good memories fun times and things that at the time didn't seem that important to me but looking back they kind of were the making of me in many ways you know contributed to my character and my relationships and all those kind of things you know how I interact with the world 
So yeah, and uh, overall, I'm pretty content, really. Because you you were honest enough to say when it went well, and honest enough to say when it went badly. That's what I liked. I think. You know, yeah. it went well. It went well. You know, there was no there was no sort of like well like. There's no like false modesty, you know, and something went badly, it went badly, which I love. Yeah, uh, I think it was important in our industry, particularly authenticity is really important. I think with this kind of thing, if you're writing about your story, people can spot if you're being inauthentic. I think you just got to tell it as honestly as you can, do you know what I mean? And yeah, bits of it were great and I did have little pockets of success that I'm very proud of and bits of it. I'm not proud of, but they happened and they're fine. You know what I mean? That's just part of the whole story. I think, yeah, the point of the whole book really is that kind of low level story where perhaps not a great deal happens. You just, a life potters on, and, you know, events occur. Do you think that's why it hit a chord with so many people? I mean, it's certainly hit a chord with me and I, from what I've been seeing online, it has hit a chord with lots of different people. Yeah, people say it resonates with them. Like something about it kind of, they experienced a similar kind of thing when they were DJing or when they were clubbing. So yeah, I tapped into some kind of group experience that a lot of us went through, a lot of my generation went through. And a lot of people who kind of fell in love with clubbing and DJing, we all went through lots of similar experiences with our first nights out, with our friends, those kind of things. And putting on parties, getting into, you know, being obsessed by music and DJing culture. But a lot of people have been through that, I guess. So a lot of people identify with some of the things in the book. And you mentioned briefly you're quite nostalgic, right, generally? Yeah, terribly sentimental, yeah. <laughs> Again, I think that, that comes across, you know, with a lot of love for, for, for the old times, be it your childhood, be it your yeah. teenage years or whatever, you know. Yeah. Again, another thing I, I liked, I really liked about the book was um, I, I think that going out to, to nightclubs and listening to DJs, on the one hand, is very important and on the other there's something you know quite there can be something quite silly about it yeah, yeah, yeah. D did you do do you agree absolutely i think you can argue the toss about it being a really important part of a community and a place where people can go to express themselves and where creativity can flourish and where we can join together and you know transcend lots of boundaries imposed on us but also we're just jumping around in a, a dark room we're like kids at a disco. Like when I was a kid, I loved discos. And we're still those same kids in that dark room with the bright lights, getting excited because it's dark and loud, you know what I mean? So yeah, I think those two things exist simultaneously. It's one of the, one of the great uh, joys of dance music culture, isn't it? The fact that it is both those things at the same time. One of my favorite lines from the book um, is, I nearly played at Club UK. And then you talk about <laughs> various other things that, that you, nearly did. I know, I know we've talked about you being very happy with where you are, but do you have any sort of big regrets? Uh, not regrets as such. I do, you know, I think I've, I don't know if I made it clear in the book, but I think in order for me to have been more successful, I would have had to have a different personality. I would have to be a bit more pushy, a bit more of a party animal, a bit more outgoing. I think that probably would have helped. And you can't change your personality. You are who you are. Um, I think there was a few missed opportunities. There were times when I could have, you know, sold myself a bit more, perhaps. You know, there was a time where my album came out. Uh, I was getting a little bit of Radio 1 airplay. Some people can kind of ride that and get more stuff out of it. I just didn't know how to do that. I did try, but it never kind of unfolded. Do you know what I mean? So I, I guess I regret not knowing how to be more successful in a small way.
but you know, like I say, it's still at the same time I balance that with like it still was okay what happened. Do you know what I mean? It was still quite fun. I mean, what do you think, having having come through all this? How important do you think it is in the dance music industry being able to speak to someone? How how important is it that like the, the sheer talent? You know, I I, th- I think. I tend to think that both both are needed, but I'm never quite sure what percentage they are. You know, I mean, like how like how do you how do you see that? Like, how important is it to have talent? How important is it to you know to be able to push yourself? And is it like the most talented people that get to the top, or the most? No, I think it's a mixture. I think it is. Uh, I, you know, that talent stuff. There are lots of really good talented DJs who do really well, but there are also other DJs who just uh, you know are well connected play the social media game really well um and also who were very lucky i think luck plays a huge part in it because i and i'm sure loads of other djs know loads of djs who are brilliant but have never achieved any kind of level of success because there just aren't enough plum rolls for everyone so inevitably luck and connection and how well you can promote yourself and how affable you are they all come into it as well um you know in an ideal world we would just uh, djs would live or die by how good they were, by their music and their selection and what they did on the night. But the reality is, you know, is a much more complex picture than that. Luck, to me, seems to be a huge part of it, man. But also, I think money, sometimes, you know, the higher end, I think clearly sometimes an agency plows a lot of money into an artist to get them to a certain position. You know, there's a, there's a lot of levels. You sort of touch on this in the book, but I, I want to... Um ask about it if I may what do you think was the best moment of your career not necessarily the best gigs I know you you talk about that in the book about the one gig um that you played in in South London I think which just everything everything went right you know there's many plum moments where I was playing a club somewhere you know in the middle of the night by myself hadn't traveled there where it just went really well and people were loving the tunes I can think of there was a gig I I mentioned the Bulgaria gigs. They were fantastic. Do you know what I mean? A crowd of people who just want to hear what you're going to do, who are really up for it. They love it. They're not going anywhere else. It's a nice sound system. Those kind of gigs, man. I look back on those with absolute joy. They're they're brilliant. Incredibly lucky to have been booked for that kind of thing. I guess I'd pick those gigs out definitely as high points. Yeah, there's that lovely moment which pretty much starts off the book where you're talking about a gig. I think it's in Bulgaria. And everything's going really, really well, you know, and it's just, it, you can feel how, how happy you are, you know, that everything is working perfectly. Yeah, I mean, those moments, like I say, you look back on them, at the time they were brilliant, good fun, but when you look back and you realise just how, what high points they were, really. and yeah, nothing else really compares to those kind of moments. And if I may, what was the, what was the worst moment? Is there one moment that stands out as being... Yeah, you know, it was all okay, really. I used to really beat myself up about uh, if I'd messed the mix up, for, I would be really self-critical and sort of worry myself that I'd ruined the whole evening just because I'd jogged the needle or something. So I guess I could, you know, the intensity of feeling I had was way out of proportion to what had actually happened. Uh, I guess I was very young, very nervous and very obsessive all at the same time. But there haven't really been any, you know, it'd be something like that, I guess. Occasionally I got knocked for my money. Occasionally people didn't pay me. Um, sometimes they were a bit mean about not paying me and it got a bit frightening, but 
uh, you know, you just pick up the battle scars and then you've got a good tale to tell, you know. So, yeah, I, I would struggle to find a, a bad point, really. I guess at some point my health uh, deteriorated, but that wasn't really related to the DJing anyway. I was just the kind of person who was very driven, regardless of what industry I was working in. Who were your heroes in dance music and did you get to meet many of them? Uh, Norman Jay was always a huge hero to me. When I really, when I first moved to London, I used to listen to his show religiously and I taped it and so many tunes that I love now and that still live with me now. I taped off the radio in 1990, 91 from Norman Jay's original Musiquarium, his Rare Groove shows. Um, and he, put, he released his book, I think it was last year or the year before, and it's a brilliant read. And I, you know, I think it's a bit of a cliche, really, but I, I do, as a DJ, I've always really respected and idolised Norman Jay. I think he's brilliant. Um, and I love, well, obviously I love his music. I guess that's the most important thing about a good DJ, right? Um, you... And yeah, I've never met him. Um, don't want to meet him. You should never meet your heroes. It's terrible thing. Fair enough. I, I want to talk briefly about Tech House. Because, oh, yeah. now, this is a really interesting part of the book because um, you were... A tech house DJ um, for most of your career, like probably when since when tech house started. Now I'm old enough to remember when tech house was one thing, and I'm not sure what it is now. I'm not sure if it's the same thing or not. But like tech house is, it has an odd reputation, um, and I think it has. The public perception of it, it has changed a lot from the days when it was like Matthew B and, and, and people like that. Um, and it's often seen perhaps unfairly these days as, as like being big commercial kind of house. What is tech, tech house for you? I mean, if you had to explain it, what is it? Uh, well, you know, at the time we used to say it's a bit techno, it's a bit house, really. We used to say it takes the, you know, the kind of deepness of techno, the booming bass lines of house puts it together kind of thing. I think the interesting thing about Tech House is that it was a DJ genre rather than a producer's genre. So it bubbled up because a certain bunch of DJs picked certain tunes and then together that kind of became the Tech House sound, which was quite a broad sound back in the mid nineties. And it encompassed some progressive house some techno, some US house, you know, all sorts of, even some sort of trancey stuff, some European stuff. You know, there's lots of different styles that that they all played and so that kind of coalesced into this underground house sound and then at some point people started making tech house records myself included um you know and i, I am part of the reason why we're at where we are now with this glut of sound like tech house because when it changed from being a selector's genre to being something that just people made eventually it seemed to become formulaic and whereas previously it was quite um that broad genre in terms of dance music now has become quite formulaic. That's that's just that switch from being a DJ's DJ led genre to being a producer led genre. I guess it took a few years. I mean, we, we started in the mid nineties, and uh, but yeah, it seemed to be getting quite rotten by the end of the two thousand tens. Maybe depends on where you pick your own date. Do you know what I mean? But if if people are sort of interested in what tech house was when it started it, what like one tune would, would you you have them go back to i would choose something by bushwhacker maybe or something by uh assad silver lining um i think of uh, maybe the usual suspects um that uh it's a huge kind of lengthy track by i think by Leo and bushwhacker it's the usual suspects 
moment in in your book that i that i disagree with i think you called dj sneak you can't hide from your butter tech house tune at one point well this is the interesting thing it got played at those nights terry francis mm. banged it out at a tech house night and it fitted in with that broad scope of playing us house into other stuff but you're right it's not a tech house record it's a filter disco record right yeah but there you go tech house at one point encompassed filter disco records and techno records night stalking that was the name of the record night stalking the usual suspects you mentioned it briefly tell us about your work as as a producer long relationships uh, which obviously the name of the book uh, is that be your best known track got radio one I guess so yeah probably um so yeah i produced from about 2001 uh to about 2016 i released lots of records i had a little period in maybe the mid 2000s where i was getting my records reviewed in magazines and that boosted my dj career i put a couple of albums out and then I kind of just uh, plateaued, like lots of dance music artists, really. Um, and, you know, the music industry tale of sales falling over the last decade and a half, two decades, uh, you know, the same thing happened to me. And it just kind of petered out, really, as de- detailed in the book, it, in a lot more uh, amusing fashion than I just said. <laughs> production um you talk again it's the honesty i really like you talk about the remix you did of asad slippery heights which is a tune you absolutely love you say this is an absolutely great tune and you got an opportunity to remix it and you you um you say it's it went really badly um i couldn't find your remix online i don't think it's brilliant i'm really happy about that but why like why why do you think it went so badly. What when you asked me earlier, what was the downfall of my career that I could name this? Uh, I don't know really. Uh, I think I was overawed. I really loved the production. It's a beautiful song. Assad's an amazing producer. He's not just like the average house level producer. He's like a scientist, man. His stuff is proper. Like, he's a serious dude. Do you know what I mean? And I felt quite overawed at, at sort of getting a chance to remix something that I already considered a classic. And I think I must have hurried it or something. At some point I thought, oh, that's okay, and submitted it. And then I listened to it later and I was just like, it's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. And it's awful of all the records to mess up. Um, so I, I don't really know what happens, but it's not a good remix. And it is odd because if you go on Beatport and press my, I think my remix is on there. Right. Name, but when you click on it, it's someone else's remix of some other track. It's just a mistake. And yeah, so maybe it doesn't even exist anyway. Maybe it was all a bad dream. <laughs> I, I love, I love the fact that you, you sort of still seem quite, t- you still seem quite upset about it now. You know, well, there you go. I said I had no regrets, but obviously you dig a little bit deeper. I, it's a shame I could make a better job of that. I could have produced something lovely, and instead I just sort of hurried it. So yeah, obviously I am still smart enough. <laughs> 
you talk a bit in the book about a few a few industry practices that that you didn't do but other people did which i find really interesting because there are some things that not many people talk about um and without naming names i mean you can name them if you want but like i'm, I'm guessing not but like how prevalent is ghostwriting oh very prevalent particularly in the top end um there's a there's a little team in sweden who write an awful lot of stuff for an awful lot of people um and there's like these little factories where one, pe- one person does the chorus, one person does the drums, and they just pass this stuff around and produce hits. Um, it's extraordinarily prevalent. At my level, I think there's probably still quite a few people doing it, um, but you can get an AI to do it for you now anyway, really. Do you know what I mean? You don't really need a ghostwriter. If you just want to bang out some generic tech apps, sure, you can get an AI to do that for you. <laughs> but do, do you recognise that it's ghostwritten because you know what they they sound like like you, you know when you hear the sort of swedish producer i don't know that i would recognize a ghostwritten track no i don't know that i would do that i think i think it would just sound like uh you know a competent pristine piece of contemporary dance fodder and the other thing was um pre-mixed mixes Pre-programmed DJ sets. Again, how, how often does that, does that happen? I don't know how many people are still doing that um, because the software has got so easy to use that even if previously you had to rely on mining to a pre-mixed set, you could probably, you know, you could now mix stuff together with no skill at all. So I don't know if people are still doing that, but I bet some people still are. Um, yeah, I'm sure there are some people who just turn up and, you know, do that because they can. And you mentioned at one point something, uh, a subject, someone else, someone else once explained it to me or tried to explain it to me. And I saw it came up in your book without much, without much comment. And I want to ask you about it. What is the downloading for Richie Horton comment about? <laughs> okay, so in dance music, we used to send out promotional copies of vinyl to DJs and then they would review it and uh, send back a, a return sheet saying, I like this record. And then uh, people stopped sending vinyl out and started doing it all digitally. So DJs uh, now receive all their promotional music, or most of it, just as an email kind of thing. Um, And at some point, Richie Horton presumably was receiving thousands of emails every day, got some poor intern to take over that role for him of downloading all the tracks. And so they used to leave a message saying, downloading for Richie Horton which people then, some people would use that in their promotional material as though the fact that a lonely intern had given themselves RSI that afternoon doing that somehow meant Richie Horton liked their record. Um, Yes, it became a bit of a meme in dance music uh, and a kind of example of this kind of detachment that, you know, some people think the biggest stars are kind of detached from the reality of the scene because they've got someone to do that for them kind of thing, whereas other people are like, well, hey, man, he gets a million promos a day, what's he going to do? That's one of those dance music bones of contention. It, it seems quite an in, insider joke as well, which I like the fact you didn't explain it in the book. It, it just sort of it came up as, as one line later on, which I thought was fun. Yeah, it's very much an insider. Probably more than I realised, actually. And if I'd given you the book to proof before <laughs> publishing and you'd made that comment, I probably would have uh, explained it better. No, I like the fact that... You kind of forget just how much of a uh, niche little area it is sometimes. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. About the, 
not everyone knows what downloading for Richie Horton means. My mum doesn't know, you know. She soon will do. So I guess she soon will, yeah. Um, again, if you could do it all again, would you, you change anything? I mean, I get the impression not from, from the book, but is there anything you, you would change? I would copyright the term Acid House and the smiley symbol. I'd buy all the 303s in London. Um, would I do things differently? I don't know, man. I think, like, I definitely needed to do something differently to be more successful. But as I say in the book, I could never quite pinpoint what that was. So I, could, I guess I could have a second run at it in this scenario. Uh, and I guess I would maybe approach things differently, but quite what that approach would be. I'm still no wiser having written the book as to why or how one might be more successful. Do you know what I mean? Um, I don't know. Yeah. Try harder, I guess. <laughs> but you, you, you learn, it, it sounds to me like you learn a lot about yourself writing the book. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a long process. I learned a bit about myself. I learned that I was terribly driven when I was younger and terribly obsessed, more than I felt at the time. But looking back, I can see that I was quite uptight and, you know, really quite driven and focused on this whole kind of DJ music, dance culture thing. And I think when I was in it, I didn't quite realise quite how much I was in it to the exclusion of all the other things that other people were doing. So, yeah, I guess I learned that. And you, you still DJ and produce, right? Well, you know, uh, before COVID, I'd not had a gig for months. I'd done a little stint on a pirate in Brighton, but before that, I'd not had a gig for a year or so. Um, and I kind of wound down producing in 2016, 2017. And it's all still there. I could start it up again, but, you know, I just, I've been writing so much. I've kind of channeled all my creative energy into writing now. It seems a bit more of a dignified thing for a man of my age to be doing. Um, and I really love it. So I don't know, you know, if I got the call, I would definitely go and DJ again. I don't know that I'd ever produce again. I'm not sure there's a need for a 50 year old deep house producer to start banging out some loops. I don't know if the world really needs it, I'm here, but I, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I, would, I would gig again, perhaps, if it's local, not too late. I, I want to ask a very, very sort of niche question, but I'm going for it anyway, because um, you, uh, I, yeah, you, you do a lot of journalism now, and I think you you were talking online about um, one of the I can't remember like one of the places you write for interviewing you or, or, or something like that. Um, as someone who also writes a lot about electronic music, what do you make of the relationship between sort of journalism and ele electronic music? Do you think it's healthy? I think it's a very broad church. I think there are bits of it that are super healthy. I think there are bits of it that clearly uh, are unable to act in a way that people would like them to act because they're restrained by who their clients are or who their advertisers are. And I think that's just the reality. I think as punters, readers often have extraordinarily high expectations, like moral expectations of their magazines and their uh, websites. And I think the reality is that lots of them have, you know, they're operating in a commercial world, so we can't expect them to do, to be what we want them to be. But I think there are smaller outlets who are less fettered by those kind of things. Uh, Five Magazine in Chicago just published an absolutely scorching, savage article about Playgrounds. Because Five Magazine aren't answerable to anyone because they're a tiny little outlet. So like, it's a broad church, you know, 
Cool. Well, it was a real pleasure to speak to you today. Um, I would recommend anyone go go and read the book because it's a fabulous read. Um, I think I was saying uh, before we started the interview, I read it in, in two days and I absolutely loved it. So, um, yeah, do go and read it. I would, I'll take my hat off to you. That it was you, you provided me with a lot of pleasure. Um, and love reading. Much. I'm reading really fine.